Welcome to another edition of Union Money. I'm Ryan Hurst this evening. We're once again focusing on estate planning. You can never anticipate what the future holds. The one thing that you can ensure that your loved ones are taken care of long after you've passed on. The concept and for us behind estate planning is to help you make the right choices about securing the financial well-being of those you leave behind. And joining me are my usual guests in this subject, Harry Joffe, Head of Legal Services at Discovery Life, and Gordon Stewart, Managing Director of Acura. Good evening, guys. Harry and Gordon, good to have you on the show. How's it, Brian? And Harry, a <coughs> question for you. Hello, Harry. Good evening, Gordon. So, uh, I believe it's quite cold in Mauritius, so uh, we actually have so upset for Gordon. Um, guys, I never get any sympathy. <laughs> yeah, uh, d- just to Harry, just before I came on the program, I was reading something. We've been waiting for the bill that allows people to borrow from their retirement funds, and retirement funds are very much part of an estate plan and how you develop your plan, your tax, your financial investment, and mm-hmm. retirement planning. And, and people have been waiting for this bill where it allows individuals to borrow to access, to to access, access. funds from their retirement funds while still working. Yes. Now, the bill seems to be in draft form, but it's very different to what uh, individuals have been waiting for and expecting. Well, it was kind of in line with what they told the industry. So the idea is there'll be two parts. One part is an access part, which they call an investment part, which you'll be able to access at any time. But if you access that part, you'll pay tax at your marginal rates. So it adds onto your normal income. The other part is the retirement part, which you can't access. But... um. Two differences what people expected. Number one, vested rights stay as they were. So let's assume it changes March 2024, which is the most likely. All contributions up until that date stay under the old system, and any contributions after 1 March 2024 will be under the new system, and that will mean your access will be very small initially. And that's why the labor unions aren't that happy with that, because they wanted proper access, and the access will take a couple of years before it's worth anything. And then, of course, the retirement part. When you retire, you won't be able to take any cash. It'll always have to be a full annuity. So the one-third, if you've, sorry, if you've accessed funds or whether you've accessed funds or not. The one-third is for access. Either when you, if you access it when you're working, you pay tax at marginal. If you wait till retirement and access the one-third part, then you pay tax in the retirement tables. So that's a cherry to try and make you wait. To make make you wait. But this bull, I mean, you mentioned 2024. Yeah, so the bill actually proposes March 2023, but the industry won't be ready before 2024, I can tell you. There's a lot of system changes. I mean, as you'll know, we only got up past the 1 March 2021 changes. We have to annuitize your provident funds and the vested rights there. So the systems have only now you know, been put in place. Now the industry's got to change again. So everything you've paid up, the proposal, everything you've paid up to that date, say 1st of March 2024, you won't be able, it'll be, it'll be frozen. Under the old system. Under the old system. So you could resign your job and access that, but then of course, luck, you could be four. But for proper access, you're under the new system. Yeah, if you resign your job and access, you're going to pay tax on the the withdrawal withdrawal tables. tables, Correct. Whereas you talk about marginal tax, someone gets added to their taxable income, they could be paying 30 to 35% on a very small pat. So it's really not going to be of much use, particularly to the individuals now who are struggling to make ends meet. That's what the labor unions are saying, yes. They expected access to the full amount. You see, Brian, the trouble is, and Treasury knows this, if you open up access to the full amount now, to the full one-third now, a lot of the funds actually can't do it because they invested you know, in long-term investments. You'll know this better than me. They invested in long-term bonds. They can't just unwind. Generally, funds are planning for long-term. They're not expecting a lot of access. So if you open up access now, a lot of these funds won't have the liquidity. They'll have to access or 
exit from the market too rapidly and they'll be running those funds and it could cause systemic damage. Mm. Very interesting to see what Kasarte have to say. Gordon, we, we, I started off the program by saying how important it is in terms of his plan, planning, but what is your advice to individuals to ensure that their state plan is current and up to date? Yeah, thanks, Brian. So I think first and foremost, let, let's start off with the cornerstone of every estate plan, and that's the last will and testament. So my advice would always be that you should be looking at your last will and testament at least every two years, or alternatively, if there's been a change to your uh, personal situation. Then second of all, if you've got a trust as part of your estate plan, uh, let's, and that would be local and offshore, uh, then just ensure that it's up to date and that it's current. You know, I know we've spoken at length in the past about how trust deeds are outdated. And don't forget that this also includes just to make sure that all of the administration and accounting is up to date. Then something that I know that uh, Harry will love is make sure that your life policies reflect the intended beneficiaries and that you haven't got some ex-girlfriend from 20 years ago that's still nominated as the beneficiary. Then, Brian, your favorite one, make sure that your life file is up to date and that it contains all of the information that's needed, not only by your surviving spouse, but also your executor, uh, so that they are able to continue and manage your affairs when you're no longer there. And then last, but probably not least, um, it's not a bad idea to, to go and have a consultation every now and then with an with an expert estate planner, just to get their input and advice, you know, because they, they're going to have a much better understanding as what's happening in the fiduciary environment than perhaps just your local financial advisor or accountant or, or attorney. Harry, very different now, the way individuals now have left South Africa and there's a whole new process in terms of no longer immigration. Yes, so you become tax resident or non-tax resident you don't formally immigrate anymore. That process has stopped. Okay. And that's for good reason, Brian. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to make it more flexible. People can come and go, and if they've gone, they can come back a lot easier without the immigration requirements and restrictions. Okay, one of the things we've discussed on numerous programs that we haven't discussed for a long time is people whose trusts are not up to date. It's actually mm. what we call, to use the word, sham. A sham trust where the individual is actually controlling their trust. So the question I want to ask you, has anything changed? Are revenue getting more serious about looking at trust to make sure that all the resolutions are up to date and correctly administered? And then most important is if you haven't done that and you now decide, well, I need to now regularize my, 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 my trust, can you put it right? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning, Brian. So interesting point that you raised with alter ego and sham. So our courts mm -hmm. are very, very clear. There's two distinct processes and two distinct bits of law. An alter ego trust is where you control the trust. So the trust is valid, it's set up properly, but you as the main trustee run that trust. You don't have minutes, as you say, and you don't take resolutions, you do what you want. A sham trust is something different. That's where the trust was not actually set up. Now, that's very rare in South African law. In fact, we, apart from one little case in the Free State, which is not really a, a major case, it's a short little judgment which no one really follows, no South African court has yet found a trust to be a sham, because that would mean you don't recognize the trust and you don't recognize the consequences of what happened with the trust, of assets that went into it. So most of our court cases look at the alter ego, not at the sham. Now, if a trust is the alter ego, in other words, you're controlling the trust and you haven't passed the resolutions, as we've said, then you've got two risks. You've got a tax risk and you've got an estate planning risk. 
So the biggest risk is, of course, what's always the biggest risk in your life, Ryan, is an unhappy ex-spouse. So if you've got an ex-spouse-to-be and you've got your assets in a trust, that ex-spouse will come after your trust assets. And if you haven't run the trust properly, you haven't passed resolutions and minutes and tax returns, etc., they will argue the trust is your alter ego and they'll try to ask the court to pierce the veneer of the trust, which means you go behind the trust and you try to take the trust assets or you try and attack them. Now, funny you ask if there's anything new. So the great research I do for the show, last week there's a brand new case just out. PAF versus SCF. Those are, of course, acronyms. They don't give you the real names. And that's an SCA decision. And what happened there was exactly that, where the individual ran the trust as his own alter ego. But the court said that's not enough. And that's following a previous ruling which we've discussed before. The fact that it's your alter ego doesn't mean they automatically will pierce the trust. You've got to show the second step, which is you set up the trust and you ran the trust to either defraud your ex-spouse or prejudice your ex-spouse. Now, this new case, the SCF versus PCF, 20 days before the court hearing of the divorce, the husband took £115,000, set up a trust offshore, and donated that money to the trust. Now, the court still had no doubt that was done to prejudice his spouse, and they unwound that, and she was allowed to claim against those assets. But the previous case of M versus M, where the individual set up a trust for estate planning reasons, even though he ran it as his alter ego, they didn't pierce the trust because he didn't do it just to prejudice his spouse. So it's a two-stage test. It's A, is it your alter ego? B, do you do it to prejudice your spouse? So that your ex-spouse can claim, and of course creditors can claim. And we've had quite a few cases of creditors trying to claim as well. Now, this, you mentioned SARS. SARS said we've got no reported cases of SARS trying to do that yet. They haven't picked up on this. So if you run your trust improperly, you've got that spouse and creditor risk. And there's a pr another problem which we picked up, a tax problem. What's also doing now, if you take an asset and you sell it, and of course you had a capital gain in the trust, and you pass a gain down to your beneficiaries to access their lower rate, if you don't do the process properly, in other words, you don't pass the resolutions and you don't pass it to them in the same tax year, SARS will still tax the trust on that gain and not the beneficiary. So they're using the resolutions as a tax trap to say you didn't pass the resolution, you didn't do it properly, we're going to ignore that and we're going to tax the trust on that gain anyway. So if you don't run your trust properly, in short, you've got a creditor risk, you've got a sparse risk. which I've And you've got a sales risk. And you've got a tax risk. Yeah. Gordon, anything like that happening internationally? Or is that just... Yeah, thanks, Brian. I'm glad, glad you gave me the opportunity. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I was going to say that it's, you know, the bad administration of trusts is unfortunately not just restricted to South Africa. Mm. Um, you know, we've been asked to, to take over trusts from other management companies where the administration and accounting just has not been done. Now, I mean, that boggles my mind because of all the regulations that we are faced with internationally. So how it happened, I have no idea. But what's also concerning is that there's many occasions where trust companies are not paying uh, the taxes that are due. Uh, and, and a good example would be, for example, immovable property that's situated <coughs> in the UK uh, with, and the 10-year the uh, anniversary charge. So it, it's not limited only to South Africa, Brian. Unfortunately, we're seeing it overseas as well. And that's the point I'm making why people need to make <coughs> that their tr trust is properly regulated. Gordon, following our discussion, there are so many people who've taken on the role as trustees for both interviewers and trust, testimony trusts. How onerous is this and the responsibility for taking on this role? 
Yeah, Brian, I mean, the starting point has to be that any person acting as a trustee has got to understand that they are fulfilling a fiduciary role and that they have to act with care, diligence and skill with what can be reasonably be expected from a person who manages the affairs of, of someone else. Uh, and, and if you end up in court, the courts are not going to look at your specific skill level. So they're not going to say, all right, fine, Brian Hirsch, you are such and Harry, you are the following. They're rather going to look into and inquire as to what a person who would normally look after another person's affairs would have done under similar circumstances. So I think just a couple of key points, and we've touched on it already tonight. But first and foremost, when you're acting as a trustee, you have to work in conjunction with your co-trustees. You can't work unilaterally. And that, that ties back to what Harry was talking about with regards to the de facto control that people exercise over trusts. Um, then if you're going to act as a trustee, then you have to be aware that you need to understand exactly what is in that trustee and what each clause means and that you manage the trust in accordance with the law. Um, so if you don't understand the trustee and you don't understand, understand the terms and conditions, rather just don't take up the trusteeship. Mm. Uh, then obviously the, trust need, the trustee needs to take control of the trust assets. Um, so this means that you need to look after those. So I'm thinking now immovable property, you need to make sure that it's insured. Uh, and for example, with regards to discretionary assets, that those are managed properly. Uh, and a very important responsibility for a trustee is you need to determine the short, medium and long term needs of the beneficiaries. Don't forget that a trust has to uh, prepare annual financial statements um, and it also needs to submit a tax return. So, you know, Brian, the list is endless. It, it just goes on and on. But my advice to anyone that's thinking of taking up the role of a trustee just remember, there is a reason why trust companies have professional indemnity, okay. because unlike a company director, a trustee will remain liable in perpetuity for the period that he acted as a trustee. And so it's a, it's a brave man who takes on that responsibility. And Brian, we've got to add in our new category, of course, the ESG. We're going to come back to that. Okay. We're going to hold that for a moment because we're going to take a break and we'll be back shortly. Stay tuned. You're watching Union Money. We're talking estate planning this evening.